for a little backwards here but there's nothing wrong with sport climbing i just require bouldering (laughs) (laughs) that seemed like the appropriate one for today how are you doing pretty good starting the monday off here in chattanooga had a good weekend of sport climbing and bouldering Uh, yeah kind of did a little bit of both which which did you feel like you were being stronger at uh, I don't know. How I don't know, know how that's to a question that's answerable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Um, you know, when I when I was first reading this paper that we're going to talk about today, um, I liked to sort of imagine that the authors saw it as a climbing version of West Side Story with like lead climbers as the jets and boulders as the sharks. And they're like all sing, singing, battling against each other in their tests. Instead of walking towards each other, snapping, they're just blowing chalk off. (laughs) Exactly. The French blow battle. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. The paper we are here to talk about today is called Comparison of Climbing Specific Strength and Endurance Between Lead and Boulder Climbers. Authors are Nicolay Steen. Uh, I'm going to mess some of these names up horribly. Um, Adol Saderbakken, Espen Hermans, Vigard Albert Varide, Elias Olson, and Vidar Anderson. Really, I should just say Nicolay Steen at all, but... You know, I'm trying here. It's it's a callback from my youth divisionals MC days where I wanted to say everybody's name. The valiant effort, I'd say. <laughs> it's in it's in the journal uh, plus one 2019, and the purpose here was to examine the maximal and explosive strength in dynamic and isometric pull up to identify the utilization rate of force using a ledge hold compared to a jug hold and to compare forearm muscle endurance between lead and boulder climbers. Um, Just a quick note here. They say ledge throughout this. um, It's what climbers call an edge. They're using a 23 millimeter edge, I believe. So um, some of us are like ledge, that's a jug too. (laughs) So just, just to clarify there. Um, any, anything when you were going into this paper, like before you picked it up and read it that you thought, um, I was really interested, interested to see what was going to come out of it. You know, we always hear certain assumptions about different disciplines of sport, uh, different, different disciplines of our sport on who's going to be stronger on certain moves or who's going to be more powerful. 
so on and so forth. So this looked like a good kind of look at that and see and yep. and would highlight if that's actually the case or if it would give us a direction to go to look at this a little deeper. But I thought it was a good a good goal, a good purpose of a study to kind of start figuring things out. It could be useful as a coach when you're looking at how am I I'm going to program for an athlete depending on their goals. So I was excited to dig in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Same for me. Uh, let's jump into this thing and see what became of it. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Lucky two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? 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 I'm ready. Are you? I think I am. I drove like 12 hours yesterday and am operating on much less sleep than I would like to. Um, But I think, I think that I'm ready. So uh, let's jump into the methods. In a scenario like this, I don't suppose it is bad form to just... Flip a coin. Alrighty. So this was a cross-sectional study, first off. So a cross-sectional study is a study that looks at data from a population at a specific time. So I just we got to keep all this in mind as we're looking at these results as they come come out. Uh, there were 31 subjects, 21, 28 male, three female. Uh, they were split into two different groups, a bouldering group and a sport climbing group. And this is just based on their self-reported discipline they did the most. So someone said, yeah, I do more bouldering. I do more sport climbing. They split them into those groups. There were 16 in the bouldering group, 15 in the sport climbing group. Uh, they looked at some just descriptive data about these groups. And I think ones that were meaningful here was the bouldering group had about close to six years of experience climbing. These are all the, the means. So there's going to be some variation there, obviously. Sport climbing group was around nine. Uh, both of them trained about a little over three and a half times a week. So I think we had 3.9 for the bouldering group, three, 3.4 for the uh, sport climbing group and their self-reported red point grade for the bouldering group was 11 D or 12 A ish. And the sport climbing group was in between 12 C and 12 D. So I think those are all useful to show, you know, where we're at coming from a climbing ability level here. And, you know, people have been climbing for close to six years at a minimum, it looks like. If you just look at the mean, so people have been climbing for a good amount here. Did you did you pull up the chart, the IRCRA chart? Yeah, I did. I have that bookmark now because I'm seeing more and more of that in these recent, more uh, later papers. So it's a good thing to have. Yeah, I think it's great. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna point Dale toward it and see if we can see if we can use it in any way yeah. with all of our data. Sure we can figure something out. <clears throat> yeah. So they got all these. Uh, descriptive data about the groups, and then they moved on to the testing. So they did a light warm-up before all these testings. Uh, They did four different measures they were going to um, explore here. First measure was a maximal isometric pull-up. So they did these on both the jug and the ledge, which is that 23-millimeter edge that you get set up about 90 degrees of elbow flexion. And with a harness, you're attached to a force scale. So there's a lot of these out these days. One of those where you pull as hard as you can for five seconds and they get, uh, they're looking at the max force, your average force, uh, the average rate of force development for both the jug and the edge. 
They also looked at an explosive dynamic pull-up, which is just from a dead hang, pull as fast and as hard as you can. They had a device on the harness that sampled, I think it was 11 milliseconds or 10 milliseconds, something like that. But they were able to see how fast you did your pull-up when you were doing that movement. I thought the setup for this was nice. Um, Just because we've been recently seeing so much of like, locking the body down and and pulling as opposed to being able to try to pull the body up, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, um, like sitting and, and being locked down. And what they did was they basically attached the climber to the floor, but they were suspended. Mm-hmm. So the climber was hanging uh, and then they were attached to the floor with a static rope through that load yep. cell. Um, which I thought made a little more sense. It's a little more specific to how we pull while we're climbing. And it's interesting too, because then they did do for the last test, the forearm muscle endurance test. Right. They went back and did do the seated version where they were seated, had a padded barbell in front of their chest and behind the, uh, behind the arms to make sure they weren't moving in the shoulders or backs. And, uh, what they did is they had a custom built edge that was also 23 millimeters deep attached to that same force cell and using 60% of their maximal isometric force, which I thought was cool how they kind of tied it to that first test. Mm-hmm. You, They would pull as hard as they could, or they'd pull at least 60% of that max force for seven seconds and then rest for three seconds. So they basically kept doing that until they couldn't produce that 60% force. So that was when they had the fatigue cut off. And the measurement they took there was just the total time at work. So we've seen similar things of this in climbing assessment where it's a repeater to failure or a repeater to you can't hit a threshold. So it was cool to see this in a study as well. Do they make it clear in there? Um, I hadn't really thought about this until you just said it. Um, It would be interesting to be able to see all of the data here. Do they make it clear whether any of the climbers – did pull as hard as they could on those intermittent tests? Um, or did they all try to keep it just above 60, like regulating their effort level for each attempt? I think they just had to hit the threshold. So they had a little screen in front of them where they could see immediate feedback. But I don't see if they had any instruction on whether it's to pull as hard as you could or just be above the threshold. Yeah, I didn't. I don't remember seeing any in there. Um, be curious because you could, you could be very tactical with that test, um, you know, hitting 61% and just holding that level as opposed to going 85% for the first bunch of reps or whatever. Uh, yeah. So they did all these, they did these four tests. Uh, it was a standard order. Um, I had it here somewhere. Yeah. The standard order. So they did the isometric pull up on a ledge or edge first, then they did. So the 90 degree pull. Then they did the 90 degree pull on the jug edge. Then they did that dynamic speed pull up and they finished with the intermittent test. So they had mm-hmm. three to five minutes rest in between each uh, test condition. Uh, they had three trials, I believe, for every test with a minute rest in between and took the highest of those three trials. And they inspr- instructed the subjects to refrain from climbing and climbing related training for 48 hours before testing. So people were coming in fairly fresh. They did a good job standardizing things for everybody. And yep. then they got these results and examined the data. Yeah. And I, 
I think they their hypothesis going into this um, is similar to what most of us would hypothesize that uh, the boulders would demonstrate greater maximal force, greater rate of force development, and pull up velocity, while lead climbers would demonstrate greater climbing specific forearm muscle endurance. Um, and they expected that both groups would see reduced force output and rate of force development using the edge as opposed to the jug, which makes total sense to me. Um, I do think it was, I think it was very smart that they did the 60% of max. And then when it dropped below 60, the test was over. Um, and I suppose that they were really trying to isolate the finger flexors and the forearms there. Yeah. Um, so that's why they did it seated as opposed to letting the shoulder get involved or any of that with a hang. I think a cool thing they did with that 60, 60% threshold cutoff was there was less mental or subjective signals to stop. You know, if someone's a sport climber and they're yeah. used to pushing through a pump a little more, if they went to maybe volitional fatigue. I could see that maybe mm -hmm. being that mental aspect being a confounding element of all this. So I think that was a good idea to have that threshold just to keep everybody honest and keep it just objective in numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it's set up pretty smart and let's take a quick break and we'll be back with the results and our verdict please all right i really need a break here okay you're listening to this super nerdy podcast so i can only assume that you're interested in improving your climbing well good news you're in luck yes science we have training options for nearly every level climber in nearly every situation from general prep to fully custom from ebooks to weekly plans delivered via mobile app Visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta for more info. And while you're there, check out Kettlebells for Climbers 2, now available as either an ebook or a proven plan. The follow-up to our wildly popular Kettlebells for Climbers plan that started so many climbers down the path to being stronger, better prepared, and more athletic. Let's all go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? All right, we have returned from our break, and let's take a look at the results of this paper trying to decide who is stronger boulders or sport climbers whatever you, whatever you think is supposed to happen i'm telling you the exact reverse opposite of that is going to happen okay i think i think as expected um for most of us anyway what th what this paper saw is that boulders are the supreme athlete i am the one who knocks essentially. <laughs> uh, so boulders were stronger and more powerful pretty much across the board. Um, all of the, the force measurements they got uh, using both the 23 millimeter edge and the jug, boulders showed higher force. Um, and that was both raw I, numbers and when they scaled it for body weight too. So those significant differences remained. So I think that just makes that an even stronger point to come out of all this. I like that the sharks are winning here. <laughs> um, both groups, as one would expect, showed lower peak force, average force, and rate of force development on the edge versus the jug. So, meaning we could pull harder on the jug than we could on the edge. As climbers, that makes total sense to us. Um, one interesting thing about that, though, I thought 
was that it was essentially the same drop yep. for all of the groups. So, um, moving from the jug to the ledge, it dropped by, you know, essentially they showed about 57 to 69% of their max force yeah. on that 23 millimeter edge. Makes me curious if there's some sort of a formula you could come up with um, for as a hold goes down in size, how much force is going to drop. I wonder if there is a somewhat linear relationship there. Yeah, that could be an interesting thing to explore. And I think you could also get some good coaching kind of heuristics out of that too, where say you only have a jug to test with for some reason and you need to guess, you know, okay, so we're going to use this and build a plan off of a larger, you know, mid 20, mid 20 to 30 millimeter edge. Maybe you can use some of these ratios or proportions to at least have a starting spot if you don't have anything else to work with. Right. Totally. Yes. Science. Um, the most interesting thing to come out of it, I think is that in the intermittent endurance tests, the repeaters, uh, the time to fatigue between the two groups, boulders and sport climbers, showed no difference. And that's the surprising one, right? You'd think the sport climbers would be better at that, but they weren't. Yeah. Um, let's discuss a little bit why that might be. Um, number one, I think we have to look at the 60% of max. Um, in my view, anyway, particularly since bouldering gyms are taller and taller nowadays. Um, I think that the big difference between a sport climber and a boulder is more about their aerobic endurance, um, how long they can, they can do really sub maximal effort. Um, so maybe testing at a lower percentage you know, 40% or something like that, which would discern a little more. They actually talk about that in the discussion as well. Um, so they say in the test they performed in this study, the average time of this intermittent test is about 107 seconds uh, for the sport climbers and then 83 seconds for the boulders. When they said, you know, climbing a boulder route, around 30 seconds, give or take there and a sport climbing route, anywhere from two to seven minutes. So maybe they weren't getting into that time where they're going to start seeing the differences. And they used a uh, Friar et al uh, used a similar test of a 10, three repeater using 40% of that maximal mm -hmm. force. And it led to a bit longer duration of that test. So I think yeah. you're kind of right on the money there with that thought. Yeah. Also, this is one of the misleading things about statistics um, is that while, while it may not be statistically significant, 107 seconds versus 83 seconds could very much be the difference between sending a sport route and not sending a sport route. Very much so. So, you know, there, there is a difference there, even though in the abstract it says showed no difference, there is a 20 what is that 24 second difference yep yeah i mean which that's... seems fairly large to me mm -hmm. i wonder if we could look at that table and maybe recruit dale to run some statistics and explain some of that yeah um, exactly um 
Another thing I thought too is I would be interested to see actually if they increased the threshold to see if that created a separation mm-hmm. too. Because you know, harder sport routes have harder boulders on them, so being able to do harder contractions or harder efforts, maybe they'll have more capacity for that. So I think maybe either yeah. raising or lowering and just seeing what happens would be interesting ways to take this. Yeah, totally. Um, also, a thing that sort of jumped out at me, and I couldn't really quite understand i've like done these gymnastics in my head a few times um they didn't gather the bouldering grade for the boulders oh hey guy you forgot something and it seems like to me it would have made a better comparison if they took that ircra chart the international rock climbing research association chart and said, this sport grade lines up with this bouldering grade. So let's compare the forearm endurance of those two groups, as opposed to let's gather the sport climbing grade of boulders and compare that one-to-one with sport climbers. Yeah, it just seems like another piece of information that could be really helpful and illustrate a lot of things that they just didn't get, especially when they're considering boulders versus sport climbers and then not even really looking at at their bouldering grade yeah so that that was odd to me i have that highlighted in red is what i was going to bring i mean they could very easily have been so the bouldering group came in at around an average of 11 d 12 a if you're a if you self-identify as a boulder it's entirely possible that you've only climbed 11 D 12 a because you've only been sport climbing a few times in the last year. Yeah, you could boulder V 10 and have climbed 12 a. Like, right. I've seen exactly. that plenty of times. Absolutely. So that, that throws it way off for me. Um, anything else in here that looked particularly good or particularly interesting to you? Another thing about the boulders and sport climbers, um, I think that if we, if we took, because they took the like mental side of it out, that also is going to make the number a little more equal. I think one of the, one of the big components of sport climbing that you can't test for in a test like this. So, you know, no, no shots at all to the researchers is the the mental component of it the how much can you relax when you're up above a bolt versus mm. how hard you're trying that's pathetic i how hard did you even try or did you hey, 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 hey. and and we can't you know we can't strip that away from sport climbing but we can strip it away in this endurance test so it's entirely possible that the endurance just does get much closer like it shows up here when we take all of that fear component, all of that mental component out of it. Yep. Um, I think another interesting thing was that the rate of force development was one of the most marked difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So I think it does highlight the importance of having some way to measure that or assess for that in your own climbing or someone you're working with. Cause I think that could highlight potential for improvement, especially if you're trying to move back and forth between disciplines, things like that. Yep. They, they mention in here, and I think this is an interesting, um, interesting discussion to have is the kind of the, which came first, the chicken or the egg argument. Um, you know, did these people 
when they decided to boulder more, did that increase these aspects of their climbing or did they self-select for bouldering because they were better at those aspects of climbing? They were, they were stronger, more powerful. So they became boulders or they had better endurance. So they became sport climbers. Um, I think that's an interesting discussion. What do you suspect is the case there? I think it might be both. I think it really highlights how useful something like limit bouldering can be in your climbing overall, because that's going to be something you can use to increase all of these metrics without having to really dig into a whole lot of non-climbing training, if you will. So I think just the act of bouldering probably had a big importance in improving all a lot of these tests. Yeah. And I, I suspect that like, 20 years ago, um, in climbing gyms, the difference may not have been so, so marked, um, because the boulder, the boulders looked like sport climbs. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays with bouldering becoming more and more powerful, more and more gymnastic, um, I think climbing on boulders in the gym will very often increase your your rate of force development. It'll make you more powerful over time. Um, so, so I agree. I think it's probably a little of both, you know, part, partly I enjoy being more powerful and doing these gymnastic moves. So I'm going to spend more time doing it. So I'm going to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You I know? agree with you on that. Uh, what does this paper not say? What is close? There's no close in science, Barry. There are right answers and wrong answers. Yeah, but I'm just saying, Mr. White. I think I think the number one thing, frankly, um, that it does not say, even though it does say it in the abstract, this is another, another strike against the abstracts, um, is that boulders have the same endurance as sport climbers. Yep. I don't think it actually says that. Yeah, I was going to say that it could be easy to take this paper as an excuse to not train endurance ever as a sport climber and just try and train only strength. But I think that would be a misinterpretation of these results. Um, Even for a cross-sectional study, uh, one of the caveats for one of those, it's just descriptive. So it, it doesn't provide any causal links or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So it's literally just looking at a data set and, or looking at a group and this is what is going on with this group. It's just descriptive. That's it. So it's a piece of the puzzle, but you'll probably need more to make any claims or make major changes in how you go about things. Yeah, it's foundational absolutely. more than anything else, I'd say. Absolutely. It also does not say, even though I fully believe this to be the case, that all boulders are stronger than all sport climbers. I am the one who knocks. We, we know what team I'm on at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I switch teams like it just doesn't even matter. No, back and forth. <laughs> and I think it also doesn't say that bouldering automatically makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a, it could be really easily taken away that it says that, but it just doesn't. And, and frankly, uh, from my like subjective experience, that's something i believed years ago, but then I would go and I would essentially sport climb the boulders, you know? So bouldering really wasn't giving me the added strength and power that it might sound like it does when you read this paper. Yep. 
let's look at the application. I got all these little pieces. Like, they're all part of the story, right? But they don't mean much on their own. But when you start telling me what you know, we start filling in the gaps. I'll have them and lock them before the sun goes down. Um, for me, I think, I think what I am taking away from this and how I will apply this moving forward is, is really just looking at, um, not all climbing is created equal. Um, so if you're a boulder versus a sport climber, there might be some slightly different metrics we want to shoot for, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that in terms of you have to reach this metric to be a boulder. I'm saying it more like I want to see a little more strength, uh, a little more power as a boulder than I do as a sport climber. And if, and this is something we should talk about as a team, if there were an easy way to measure rate of force development coming up in the future, that would be a great metric to add to the panel that we already gather from climbers. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think when I look at the paper, what I really get from it is, you know, I work as a coach full time. I'm dealing with people both in person and remote. And I think it's really useful to have simple and repeatable tests that you can use to test, retest, make sure things are moving up. Mm -hmm. I think these are all pretty good starting points. I think they can be repeatable. They don't, you know, they use probably some expensive scales and stuff in this uh, study, but you can find affordable replacements for some of this equipment. I think this would be a good starting point if you're looking to build some sort of testing battery. I think you could pull mm. a little bit from these procedures here to use that. Yes, science! Yeah, I, I like that a lot. They make a few suggestions in the practical application section that I actually sort of, as a coach, disagree with. Um, at least half disagree with. Uh, they do say finger flexor strength training can likely benefit climbers of both disciplines and resistance training focusing on maximal and explosive strength of both the finger flexors and the prime movers can likely benefit both groups. And I agree with that completely. Um, we all should be training those things. But then they also, they, they go on to say that those things might prove more beneficial for boulders than lead climbers. And I don't know where they came up with the idea that training strength and power is going to be better for boulders than sport climbers. They also say lead climbers might benefit more from focusing their training on other properties such as forearm muscle endurance. But they didn't even find any difference in the studies. That's interesting where that came from. Right. That, that confused me quite a bit. I wasn't really sure how they came up with that unless it's just the they were working off of their original hypothesis when they made this suggestion mm -hmm. um so i think that's a i mean that's a common sense um suggestion but i don't think this paper bears out that suggestion yeah i, I agree with you uh anything else you're taking away from it um, I've definitely been thinking, I mean, we, I talked about it a little bit earlier. I'm definitely been thinking about that, the uh, relative force utilization, pretty much the drop in force production from the jug to the edge. I think that'd be a oh, really yeah. interesting thing to dig deeper into, see if there's a more research out there for that, or Hey, maybe just start playing with it in the gym. Cause we're lucky enough to have a force 
scale that we can use and maybe just see mm-hmm. if we can replicate or start figuring some things out there. Cause anything we can do to make things simpler and more approachable and repeatable and less time costly, I think would be a good thing to explore. Yeah, I do too. Um, overall, I think it's a, it's a well done paper. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that it's, you know, a useful thing to look at. It sort of validates the the common sense that we all we all already believed about the properties of bouldering versus sport climbing. Um, minus the endurance part. I think there is a I think they showed a difference, um, but statistically they couldn't say, oh, here's this difference. And and I think that's one of the failings of statistics. Yep. And I, I know there's a lot of papers nowadays relatively that are looking at that intermittent hang yep. or pull or what have you. Uh, it'd be interesting to just look at all those and find a way to maybe combine them all and see if we can get a little bit more clear outcome from those tests. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And something we've mentioned a few times uh, throughout this season, which is coming close to an end here. Um is that I think it's great that science works this way. Like this is a an interesting start to the conversation of that. And let's take it a bunch of different directions and see where it leads and see what we find. Um, so, so for me, this one was a good one. Yeah, likewise, right there with you. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links right there in your show notes. And you can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, If you have questions, comments, or other papers that you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Hit the follow button right there on Spotify and leave us a review. I'm told that it helps. And please tell all of your friends who slowly and frustratingly sport climb their way up boulders, maybe even wearing a harness, that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we discuss creatine supplementation and whether or not it can benefit you as a climber. Catch you on the flip side. It's done. You keep saying that and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay. You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Don't not yo, yo.